Hi, this is Mark Yiskowitz, editor-at-large for MMM, and welcome to the MMM podcast. My special guest this week is journalist Sarani Fernando. MMM readers may recognize Sarani's byline from her work on the annual MMM Pipeline Report, which is one of our most enduringly popular pieces of content. What you might not realize is that Sarani is actually an investigative journalist who's worked in the pharma space for more than 10 years including covering pharmaceutical drug development and clinical trials. Last month, Sarani wrapped up an original podcast series dubbed The COVAX Files, in which she dives deep into the COVID vaccine race with top experts from around the world. So um, I decided to turn the tables on her and invite her in to summarize some of the takeaways for our audience. How are you doing, Sarani? I'm doing good, Mark. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And uh, we'll get to the interview with Sarani in a moment. First, some housekeeping items, as we usually do on this podcast. This year's class of MMM 40 Under 40, highlighting the youth movement in healthcare marketing, is live on our site. And the virtual award ceremony is coming up March 25th. Be sure to register for that at mmm-online.com. MMM Trend Talks, our closed-door roundtable, is coming up March 23rd. If you're a biopharma or a med device marketer and you want to compare notes with colleagues from across the industry, please consider joining me for that. Uh, which I will be moderating. Uh, if you're a healthcare marketing agency and you'd like to be considered for inclusion in the MMM Agency 100, your questionnaire is due this week. So please submit those ASAP. You can find out more about that on our website. And as a deadline for submission to the MMM Awards approaches, um, we've taped our annual Awards Uncovered webcast this week, Thursday, March 11th. If you missed that, check out the on-demand replay for tips and how-tos for crafting award-winning entries from two veteran jurors. And speaking of the awards, uh, which are now in their 18th year, they are open for nominations with the first deadline coming up April 21. As always, you can find out more about these events and programs at mmm-online.com. Okay, back to the interview with Sarani. So, you know, I just should say that this this 10-episode series is, is really a must-listen for anyone wanting an unbiased view of the COVID vaccination and all the issues surrounding it, from the design of the trials to the science to the manufacturing process. But Sarani, you know, tell us how it came about and, you know, kind of what, what the scope is. Yeah, so um, this was really just an interesting sort of seize the moment um, opportunity put to me by my old boss um, from a company called Reorg, actually, which is a financial news platform that I worked for back when I was in New York. Sort of long story on on how it got here, but when I decided to go freelance, he sort of said to me, you should, with your background, you've got 10 years of experience covering the clinical trial space, you should really do a podcast on the vaccines. And he said, if you did it, like, I would support you and I'd um, independently sponsor it. So from that, I was just like, you yeah, know, sure, this sounds amazing. Sort of a, a new sort of endeavor for me, lots of challenges, but um, sort of I, I know I know the space um, had covered vaccines in, in depth from the clinical trials perspective with Biofarm Insight back in London and also in New York. And so, you know, I was well placed to sort of seek out the right experts to talk to. I really wanted to make sure that all the episodes had a variety of experts and multiple experts just to give a really good overview, you know, that was fact-based, science-based. So we speak to, in the 10-part series, um, a combination of virologists, epidemiologists, statisticians, public health experts, and also industry experts to sort of tackle the different parts of the vaccine development and distribution process. And what was the goal for your listeners? What did you want them to take away from this? We try to give the listener more of a journey through the vaccine race. So, so starting off from the clinical trials, 
then to sort of going and, and exploring the different modalities. So in the series, we really look at the mRNA vaccines, the adenoviral vector vaccines, which have sort of been in the lead, uh, specifically in the West, and then also the protein subunit vaccines and the inactivated vaccines that we have a little bit more experience with, but you know, they're a little bit more later in the, the pipeline. And then we also go to the next steps of the process, looking at manufacturing and all the sort of hurdles there. And then also parts of the process that people sort of seem to overlook, like the logistics of just getting the vaccine from the manufacturer's gate to the patient's arm, and then also getting it actually distributed in different countries. And then finally, we just look at some of the future questions that, you know, all the burning questions that we have, like what's going to happen with the new variants or what's going to happen with children and some of the questions, the billion dollar question, like when is this all going to end? So it's been really interesting to to talk to different people from all over the world um, during the series. And I definitely was surprised during the, the series with different sort of consensus that I got from experts. Um, and yeah, I think that the important thing also is that this is really an independent podcast and we don't have any like agenda you know it's really just to sort of get the truth out there and to empower the listener to make their own decisions based on based on the facts and nothing else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah you do a good great, great job of that um so as you mentioned you, know, you started off with uh you're talking about the design of the clinical trials and uh the science behind mrna and then you segued you know around episode four and five into different types of vaccines uh, including the adenoviral vector vaccines and, and potentially what the, the second wave of vaccines could look like. There are so many different types out there. Um, you know, could you kind of just summarize how the experts parse them out in terms of, uh, you know, is, is there really an ideal vaccine? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's one of the questions that I get a lot after this uh, series. Everyone sort of asks me, it's the best one, which one should I get? And I think the, the short answer is, is that all of these vaccines at the end of the day are sort of doing the same thing. They're just doing it via different pathways. So um, I think that each of them do have their various pros and cons. Um, With the mRNA vaccines, obviously, they were the first ones to come out of the gate with great results, which were much higher than expected. And that's just because it's sort of easier to sort of make the sequence to be able to plug in. And it's sort of a plug and play, which my experts describe in the episode, to manufacture and then get into clinical trials. So there's the advantage of that combined with the high efficacy and, you know, the the speed of being able to, to make this and also tweak it if we might need to tweak it in the future. But then, you know, there's, there's cons with the fact that they're right now expensive to make because the reagents just aren't available because this is a new technology and also the freezer storage, right? We, we've been hearing a lot about the freezer storage and the stability issues with mRNA. So one mishap with leaving it out or and letting it defrost for too long makes will make it all void. So there's, there's a con with that. I think with the mRNA vaccines as well, what we've been hearing is that, you know, the reactogenicity is quite high because they're producing such a strong immune response that some people are experiencing high fevers and fatigue and headache after taking the mRNA vaccines, which is not, which is something that's a lot higher than, say, the flu vaccine. Um, and people really have to be prepared to maybe take a day off. So so there's that. And then and then we have like the, the next um, vaccine groups, which were the adenoviral vector vaccines, which 
you know, had slightly lower efficacy at, at the beginning in, in terms of how they were working against preventing symptomatic COVID. We had AstraZeneca's one, which was around 60%, and then also Johnson Johnson's uh, vaccine, which was also, you know, around 60%, but having had to deal with the new variant. Um, I think that, you know, the the efficacy there is, is turning people a little bit off, but at the same time, this is a vaccine that's much easier to distribute and store at just normal fridge temperatures, which could be a massive game changer in terms of actually achieving the end goal of getting the vaccine to everyone and potentially reaching herd immunity. And also Johnson Johnson's has a massive advantage because it, it only needs one dose. So it's like, what, you know, what would you prefer, like the, the two dose high reactogenicity or the one dose and have experienced that a little bit less or only one time? And then I think with the two other types that we spend talking about in, in the next wave sort of the vaccines is, is the protein subunit vaccines and the inactivated viral vaccines. Now, the protein subunit vaccines, I think, will be interesting to follow. We, we, we've only had a little bit of data so far, particularly with Novavax's vaccine and, and which which was initially good but we still need to wait for for more confirmatory data on that um is that we have a lot more experience with these subunit vaccines so there might be you know with the general population more positivity in terms of taking them we know the the safety profiles better with these vaccines um because a lot of you know the vaccines that, that we have for example meningococcal or the pneumococcal vaccines are based on the protein subunit platform they might also be an answer to solve the whole problem of dealing with multiple variants in if we were going to have multiple um, variants in, in one vaccine. So that might be something to watch. And then the inactivated virus vaccines, you know, we do have some like we do have more experience with these vaccines historically. China has come out with them. Um, and they have authorized them. There's been some debate on efficacy there and some questions around you know what what the efficacy actually means there. But there's also some hesitance with these with actually developing a vaccine with a virus that we don't really know a lot about because you know having them in the lab um, can be seen as quite hazardous and could, could could be seen as seen as problematic. But each of them, you know, at the end of the day, they're working to build an immune response to towards that spike protein that's you know classic um characteristic of the coronavirus um that's been circulating and i think what's important for people to understand is that and which i which was important for me to understand as well is that it's not really really efficacy amongst individuals that we should be caring about it's more efficacy as a whole with the community and also the efficacy in preventing severe disease and hospitalizations which i think now there has been more and more data confirming that that is actually the case, that it, it is doing what we want it to do. Because, you know, at, at the beginning of this whole, this whole journey, when we were looking at the clinical trials, there was a little bit of concern that these trials had sort of lower benchmarks, that they were only designed to protect against mild disease. And now I think we're seeing a little bit more data that we can be a little bit more confident that they're doing what we want them to. Those are interesting differences amongst the different vaccines, you know, and to, to the extent that one day maybe we could actually choose which one we'll get. And I, I've mm. heard medical ethicists say, you know, just get the first one that's available. I'm sure you have as well. Yeah. Um, but the, those differences are interesting to, to, to point out. Let's just move over to, you know, manufacturing distribution for a second. As we have two mRNA-based vaccines rolling out now and then the third 
which was, uh, or, or the additional vaccine from J&J, which is the adenoviral vector-based vaccine, which, as you pointed out, has different storage and, and cold chain requirements. Um, but we also saw the FDA revise some of the storage um, temperature requirements for Pfizer-BioNTech's uh, vaccine recently. Do you expect, mm-hmm. as the kind of dynamic shifts a little bit um, in terms of the number of vaccines available and the supply chain considerations, what have your experts said in terms of, uh, you know, what, what the sentiment is there? You know, will the, will the same trends continue that, that you just mentioned in terms of certain ones being harder to handle than others? And, or, you know, do you expect things to kind of moderate a little bit on that front? Yeah, I think that's interesting. When I was talking to the experts about the the storage requirements for the mRNA vaccines. I mean, mRNA is is quite unstable and and that's been the whole problem of developing these mRNA vaccines in the first place. And they've really had to really master how to keep it stable. And that's where the lipid nanoparticles come from. But the whole freezing aspect aspect is to preserve the stability of that mRNA, right? So you're sort of freezing it so it can't move, it can't vibrate, it can't um, sort of change in any any way. And I think that the the temperature is probably what might keep changing maybe if if the companies do more stability tests and they can get that down. And, And it was interesting because one of my experts actually said before Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine, you know, had that that temperature lowered a little bit that they had predicted that possibly Pfizer hadn't just done the stability testing that they needed to do um, to to sort of secure a lower freezer number, I guess. Um, and so that then that actually did happen. You know, once you start testing the stability, you need time, obviously, to, to test that stability, then you can get that down. But I do think that it, probably this, the mRNA, just with the nature of how they're made, they will have more stringent storage requirements um, than the others. And I think that that will be something that will, that, you know, the world will have to think about if the mRNA vaccines are, the, are going to be the vaccines of the future for quick development for, you know, viruses that sort of emerge because they have proven to, to be useful technology. They're now sort of have been proven to some extent that they're safe and effective and and I think the speed of development to just generate that sequence and then and then plug it in to your lipid nanoparticle will be something that will be a great tool for the future but if we can't have the storage in like remote areas or or poorer countries then that's going to be a problem so I think that that's something that the worldwide community will have to think about but yeah I think that you know with the adenoviral vector vaccines it seems to be quite okay in terms of the storage aspect but I think the hurdles with adenoviral vector vaccines is just the scale up because the way and this is explained in the manufacturing episode so go go listen if you want like a better explanation but it's um it's really to to scale it up you have to go in sort of um batches you have to scale up to one level and then you have to get that sort of down pad and then you have to go to a um do another lot and and make sure that's fine so you you have to really go in stages so that does take time and i think that we have seen some bottlenecks i think with astrazeneca's um, manufacturing that you know we don't know the details on what what happened but i think that the intricacies of actually scaling up these these um, vaccines is something that is probably going to like you know happen more in the future so we have just to be mindful of that and i think it's good that you know we do have different types of vaccines that are different using different machinery different resources different reagents so that we're able to sort of 
pivot, I guess, if there's a problem in one area, if there's a worldwide shortage of one reagent to make one vaccine, then there might be um, some collaboration amongst industry, which I think we're also seeing right now with um, with an interesting partnership. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You did a uh, episode later in the series called The New Variant Drama, which was around, you know, February 17th. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, you probably didn't have a heck of a lot of time to, to plan that earlier on when you were probably sketching out what the episodes were. What, what was it like kind of trying to sketch out a whole series when, you know, the goalposts, you know, kept changing to a certain extent while you were doing it? And, and you know, while we're on the subject of variants, you know, t- tell me what your experts kind of summed up the consensus was uh, there in terms of the, the shots efficacy against those, those, those new, uh, new variants. It was really difficult, actually, because, you know, the nature of the, the podcast episodes required, you know, there's, it's it's narrative, so it's not just a QA. and I had lots of experts in there. Um, so did, it took about two weeks, you know, to sort of put it together. And then, like, in that two weeks, there'd be all these new, like, uh, you know, pieces of news that would be coming out, and I'd have to, like, edit some bits. And, yeah, it was, it was very hard to keep up but it's interesting because i did think about variants when i was sketching out the the series um because that's something that i thought we would have to watch out for the future but i i never thought that it would happen during the series (laughs) so um i sort of did ask some people about that at the beginning and you know the the thought was that this could mutate and then we would have to be prepared to sort of modify vaccines um, as and when. But what they were saying at the beginning was that this this virus doesn't seem to be mutating that fast. And it and it's true that it doesn't mutate as fast um, as say the flu, but at the same time, I think that this virus has proven to be um, such a curious and nasty virus that even the top experts really can't seem to figure out. And um, I think that the new variant episode was pretty, um, I want to say, like, eye-opening, chilling in a way, um, because even though I think that it's it's not something to, to panic about in ways that I've seen have been put out in, like, mainstream media just for, like, clickbait sort of um, metrics, I do think it is at the same time something that we all should be aware of and cognizant of. What was very clear to me is how much of a race it is to to vaccinate, um, and not just not just individual countries. So I think what I what has been really telling to me is that we've got our own narratives in different countries. Like the U.S. is talking about vaccinating the whole of the U.S. population and getting herd immunity in the U.S. And then we've got the U.K. and then other you know, Asia different countries sort of looking at inward and I think that herd immunity is really a a global thing that we need to be um uh you know aspiring to and the the new variant episode is really what made that very clear to me because the more that a country has no vaccine and has the chance for the virus to replicate um into many different other variants then it could get to a point where if a whole country is completely vaccinated, then those new variants in that tiny island that has no vaccine could ruin it for everyone. <laughs> so so that really was um, a little bit chilling for me because I still don't think that everyone really understands that concept of um, that it's that, you know, no one's safe until everyone's safe. And I think that some of the, the leaders are 
uh, making some trucks and sharing. But um, I think that the timelines to get the vaccine out like equally is a little bit um, skewed. And I think that the, the, the way that the virus is mutating has also been surprising to, to the experts, which was chilling to me as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Let's talk about some of the biggest surprises, you know, that you encountered uh, during this uh, series. One of the biggest surprises was the different responses that I had when I asked experts whether they think that this would be a yearly vaccine, like the flu. And I, I definitely had different answers to that. And that just speaks more to the fact that, you know, there's a, there's a bit of an expert debate on um, how this virus is actually mutating, how we might have to get ahead of it, um, and how, yeah, how we might be able to control this pandemic um, responsibly versus um, something that will, you know, appease the public. So I think that was that was interesting. And so I think people should listen to that because, um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to get so many different answers. I was really surprised at the, the efficacy for the mRNA vaccines, to be honest with you. Like I I think that when I when I was looking at this um, at the beginning, I was thinking, I mean, the timelines are so ambitious. My experience covering clinical trials is, you know, that the stars and the stars are never aligned for like a first success. And so that was really surprising to me that they were actually be able to achieve that. That's really the exception to the rule. And also the speed of um, the recruitment of the trials. I think that was really surprising because generally many people are hesitant to enroll in a vaccine trial if they're, if they're healthy. So I think those were probably some, some of the most surprising things for me during this, this whole journey. Possibly there's more. <laughs> Well, it's funny you you mentioned the uh, surprise um, about you know the efficacy of, of the two mRNA based shots being in the space for a number of years. You know, I I had to tell myself for for many years, you know, don't use the word cure, don't use the word cure. And then several years ago, you know, we saw a number of Hep C drugs, you know, kind of shatter that ninety nine percent efficacious barrier. And and then you have the gene therapies that came around and immuno oncology therapies, and and the term cure started being bandied about. Um, but you know, you you commented in the uh, in the intro episode that embarking on this project, you felt like you had popped a hallucinogen because. <laughs> it reframed your usual assumptions and expectations as a journalist. Um, you know, talk, talk about that a little bit, how this maybe stretched you a little bit uh, uh, in, in, as a reporter. Yeah, I think that, you know, covering the space for 10 years and seeing like how long it takes for drugs to, or vaccines, both of them, to go through clinical trials, to go through the regulatory process, how long the regulatory process takes to, you know, go pass through all the data and, and get these um, approved. Although I do have to say that it's important for us to all understand that these none of these are actually approved, that they're, they're authorised for emergency use. So I think that's um, that's definitely something that I think a lot of people forget. But um, but I think the timelines of everything was, was really something that I wasn't expecting to move so fast. I wasn't expecting even doing an episode weekly that I would be chasing my tail and trying to update um, 
you know, so frequently. Um, uh, you know, usually it does take time for trials to complete, it takes time for trials to recruit. There's always delays. There's always delays and problems with um, regulators. There's always an issue with the data. Companies might have to go back and, and um, provide extra information to regulators on. I think that, you know, this was really a case of a unique situation. It's a pandemic. Regulators had to move mountains to actually you know, stop everything and just get these vaccines out there. You know, companies dropped things and and um, governments put billions of dollars to incentivize companies to drop things. So I think that it was it was really something that I've never seen before, and this would never happen um, if it, what there wasn't a pandemic and and if there wasn't a lot of incentives going on for um, many people to just get things get things done at high speed. So I think, yeah, the speed of it was just like, what? And when people were telling me, yeah, or when I was hearing, oh, there's a vaccine that's going to be available in like a, a year, I was just like, are you crazy? <laughs> like that, that has never happened before and it and it probably won't happen. <laughs> so I, um, yeah, uh, and, and I, it just goes to show that if everyone is willing to work together, then, then things can happen. Right, so. absolutely. We all kind of, did a collective eye roll um, when, when we read that, but uh, it does show the power of, of cooperation and collaboration. And it sounds, you know, kind of trite, but it really was was extraordinary, you know, what, what the industry yeah. did in uh, the span of, of ten months or so. Um, let's just yeah. talk, you know, about the future for a second, and then and then we'll let you go. You know, talk about the future looks like with these vaccines being rapidly deployed. We've heard. Um, Dr. Fauci give a range of uh, 70 to 80%, 85% needed to achieve herd immunity uh, in this country, at least. What does that mean for other countries around the world, you know, in, in terms of putting this uh, uh, or taming, taming this, this pandemic? Yeah, I think that the herd immunity percentage has really varied across different epidemiologists and different experts, but I'm hearing also like levels of like 60 to 90 percent and I don't know whether that's also messaging to get get the population to to act a certain way but I think that you know it is it is true you don't need 100 percent of the population to be vaccinated to to reach herd, herd immunity and you don't need it to be 100 percent effective all of these vaccines to reach herd immunity um I think that for me I would be really cautious to talk about herd immunity in terms of countries and I, because I think that if you talk about herd immunity in terms of countries that's all fine and good if you're going to close your borders and not allow travel. But when we're a global community, I think that we've really got to be um, cognizant of like the bigger picture and the the bigger percentage and the and the um, wider time frame for sixty to eighty or whatever the percentage might be of the globe to get it. And I have seen certain um, timelines of you know some countries won't even get any access to any vaccine in 2021 and how the the trajectory might be spanning out to 2023 i think that the the guidelines are probably going to just keep changing based on how the virus changes because i think that once the virus starts getting to a level where it's not killing people then i think that that's when um the future might be a little bit more tolerable. Um, but as long as it's, you know, the deaths are still happening at an exorbitant amount and, you know, hospitalizations are still, you know, burdening um, healthcare s systems, then I think that if, say, the US is, is fine, you know, by the summer or 
um, you know, the end of this year, but we're still seeing rapid spread in an island um, somewhere remotely, remote in the world, then I think that we still need to be concerned about that. But, you know, the something that was interesting was, a, um, was comments about like how, if we do want to travel, how some of the measures, we might just need to be extra um, stringent with some of the travel measures, like that getting the vaccine and getting tested at the same time and different countries coming together and agreeing on global tr travel policies. Um, because at the end of the day, this is how we got into this mass being a global community and the global spread. So I think that will be interesting to see how the world um, adapts to travel again. Mm -hmm. If there were certainly some super spreader events uh, that happened across borders uh, yeah. for sure early on. Yeah. Uh, so after after this you know, 10 episode uh, production, what, what's next for you? Um, so I think like in terms of the this podcast series, I mean, the, the goal was just to do 10 episodes and just like, you know, have a well-rounded series. But I think that given the fact that this has been such a huge talking point and I, we have had a lot of good feedback on the on the um on the, the series. Um it's helped a lot of people to make decisions. Um it's helped a lot of people to understand things a little better, the science and also just the context. Um we might do more. So stay tuned <laughs> for that. And right now I'm like taking a, a break, the drowning that I was um that I was in, but uh, but yeah, I think that you know if if there is a need for more, then we will do it. And I think that there seems to be a lot more questions that I couldn't cram into the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Follow up series, yeah, it's uh, it's been a long, strange trip, uh, as I'm sure you'd agree, and I'm sure there'll be other twists and turns. So, kudos to you on helping make sense of it all. Thank you. It was good to be on. Great. Yeah, we're, we're going to call it there. Um, okay. If you like this episode as much as I did, please give it a like. Subscribe to the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any place you get your audio programming and help others discover the show. That'll do it for another episode of the MMM Podcast. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.